One of the uh, qualities of a precious human life that gives us the opportunity to learn and practice the Buddha's teachings is that we have faith and we have receptivity and interest and eagerness to learn the Dharma. So find that attribute in yourself that is eager and interested, that has faith, that really wants to uh, engage in the Dharma and actualize it. So first find that, that feeling in yourself and then try and see where it came from, what were its causes, and how long you've had that and how it's developed over the years. And how does that eagerness and interest and faith and enthusiasm uh, help your practice? Think of specific ways in which it helps. And helps you to uh, get closer to bodhicitta and the wisdom realizing emptiness. And how can you increase that quality in yourself and also increase your self-respect, your self-confidence, your appreciation for having that quality? Okay, so instead of feeling I'm lacking, to, to really see that that Uh, that faith and eagerness and enthusiasm and so on has really connected you to the Dharma and uh, let that nourish your self-confidence.
So I, uh, I think that often we don't appreciate ourselves enough and respect that we have that interest and eagerness and enthusiasm and faith. And don't, uh, and because of that, then we always feel I'm not good enough, I'm lacking, I could do something better, what's wrong with me? And I think, you know, that this quality, which is one of the, the ten uh, fortunes of a precious human life, is something that we should respect in ourselves and also respect in others. Yeah. Um, as Dharma friends, you know, everybody who practices the Dharma, it's not like we're all going to be really close buddies and sometimes you wind up living with people that in a lay life you wouldn't even talk to. But uh, if you look at them and you see that they have this quality in them, then that can overcome all the... Um, you know, the fear, the dislike, the opinions, because you see that there's something really quite wonderful in that person that makes them sincere in their practice, and that's something to respect in them, you know, and similarly to respect in ourselves. So that's why I thought good to meditate on that. Yeah? Okay. So, do you know some people in that picture? <laughs> yeah. This is your uh, Dharma debut. Okay, so we're on chapter 8, The Essence of a Meaningful Life. So visualizing the Buddha during the preparatory practices prompts us to reflect on his ultimate attainment, full awakening, with its magnificent physical, verbal, and mental qualities. This, in turn, causes us to contemplate the path leading to that state, a path that Shakyamuni Buddha taught from his own experience. Since attaining the awakened state is our ultimate purpose, we want to learn and practice the same path the Buddha did. Cultivating bodhicitta is an essential element of this process. Okay, so when we look at the Buddha and we see his wonderful qualities and we think, you know, he was an ordinary person at one time just like me, and he did this, and there's a path that can be followed and generated in my own mind stream, and the Buddha taught that path. He wasn't selfish, didn't keep it all to himself. You know, he taught it freely for anybody who was interesting. And, you know, wow, that's good and to have this life and this opportunity. And especially uh, to practice bodhicitta. 
within the three levels of being, initial, initial, intermediate, and advanced, the method to cultivate bodhicitta and the bodhisattva's deeds is contained in the advanced level. To make ourselves capable of engaging in these more advanced practices, we must first train in the preceding practices. Of these, the most important center around ceasing our obsession with the pleasures of cyclic existence and aspiring for liberation. Uh, And these two are contained in the intermediate level of the practice. So you remember in uh, approaching the Buddhist path, we talked about the three levels of practice. If you don't remember, uh, go back and review it. But to relinquish attachment to all of cyclic existence, we must first stop attachment to the pleasures of this present life and aspire to have a good rebirth in the future. To do this, we engage in the initial level practices. So one way that His Holiness teaches is He shows how things link together. And He'll start you off at one thing and say, If you do this, then you can progress and do that, and then you can progress and do that, and then you can understand this. And then he also goes the other way and starts out with, like here, you want to be fully awakened. Well, you know, that you have to generate wisdom and you have to generate bodhicitta. And to do that, you have to aspire to get out of cyclic existence And if you want to do that, you have to overcome the eight worldly concerns and prepare for a good future life. Yeah. And so he goes both directions. You know, going forward, what one the cause that leads to the next effect, and going backwards, starting with one effect and tracing its cause. Okay. Now, what's very interesting is when you get to. the teachings about emptiness. We're always talking about uh, emptiness and uh, and dependent arising are not contradictory and they're mutually mutually complementary. Okay? So here isn't, you know, we, so we, we know we have to understand dependent arising. And we know it's not just about you know, our gardening class, okay? But here's a very good example of it in the teaching, the way His Holiness is saying, you know, if if you want awakening, then you have to generate bodhicitta, then you have to do this, then. And so he's showing there is dependent arising, right, causal dependence, right there in the path, Okay? Because sometimes we think, you know, when we have to cultivate different things, we we don't link them to our life, or we don't link them together. And, you know, here's an excellent example of causal dependence, that is holiness teaching. And to remember that, you know, understanding causal dependence in terms of the path to awakening, yeah, if you can use that understanding of dependent arising to prove to yourself that the pa- the basis, the path, and the result, that none of them exist inherently, 
then you're, you know, really doing well. Because then this whole thing that he taught isn't just, okay, well, I got to have an aspiration. I got to generate an aspiration for a better future life. That's not the whole purpose of that paragraph. Yeah. But to, to get us thinking about causality in terms of the path and, uh, and how that means that the path and all the elements in it are empty. Yeah. They don't exist under their own power. They're all interrelated and connected like that. Okay? So, um, you know, it's a, a very interesting thing to, to look at how these things are, are connected. And I uh, think that's one special quality of His Holiness's teachings is the way he connects different points, you know, because uh, I'll hear a teaching from him about, you know, something that I've studied before. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I didn't mean, understand that that connected to this, connected to that, and was indicative of this. And he just knows how to, you know, bring that out and help us to see what is actually in front of our nose that we don't see. Yeah. A special way of teaching. So good to aspire to become a teacher like that in the future. And good, and to become a teacher like that, we have to become a meditator like that and a student like that. Okay? <laughs> so don't just say, oh, I want to become a teacher. It's like, you know, I want to become a practitioner and I want to become, you know, a disciple. And it's like that. And I was also thinking, you know, uh, when you read Tibetan texts, sometimes the, the, the sentences are as long as a paragraph. They just go on and on and on. But if you look at it, very often the way the sentence is written is, having understood that, then having understood this, and having understood the other thing, and having understood that, and, you know, all these things of connecting stuff, and then you get what you're trying to go for. And actually, many of the verses in Lama Chupa are written like that. Yeah, in the Tibetan, you know, having understand blah, 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 then may I, you know, do this and understand that and aspire for the other thing. Okay. So that's one reason why Tibetan sentences can be incredibly long. Yeah, because they link all this stuff together. Okay, although liberation and awakening are our ultimate purposes, attaining them in one life is extremely difficult, although not impossible. So they say we have to aspire for awakening in this life, but not expect to it expect to attain it in this life. Okay. Certain tantric practices, when done by well-prepared and qualified practitioners, can bring awakening in this life. But generally speaking, completing the path requires many lifetimes. And even for the people who get awakened in that very life, it's because in many, many previous lives they've practiced. For our spiritual development to proceed smoothly, 
we need to ensure that we have a series of successive precious uh, human lives in order to practice the Dharma continuously over many lifetimes. Okay, for this to occur, do you see how he's connecting things? For this to occur, we must create the causes which are included in the practices of the initial practitioner. For this reason, too, the initial practices are extremely important to obtain our ultimate goal. Okay? So sometimes the, the initial practices, we want to skip over them. We think, well, they're called initial practices, and, you know, I've heard this before, and I'm too good for that. Um, so we want to skip over it for that reason. Or other times, the initial practices uh, really stump us. I mean, I remember my first learning the Dharma and the meditation on precious human life you know, was as hard to understand as emptiness. And that's the way it seemed in my mind at the time. Because it was, you know, you feel happy about not being born in the hell realms. I was never thinking of being born there to start with. <laughs> I don't even know if I believe in them. And, uh, you know, and uh, being happy to not be born as a, as a hungry ghost. And, you know, huh? Like, what is this? So it was a whole, you know, worldview that I had never heard of that was really, uh, very. it really stumped me. You know, how do I relate to all this? And do I really believe it? Okay. So sometimes, uh, rather than really going in and examining what... Um, makes it difficult for us to accept some dharma tenant, we would just prefer to skip over it. Yeah, so that, that may happen. But I think it's really worthwhile hanging in there and uh, clearing up these issues that we may have. Yeah. Okay, so precious human life. Whatever activity, so uh, the initial paragraphs here were showing how precious human life fits in the big schema of our practice. Okay, so whatever activity, mundane or spiritual, we do in life, self confidence is a crucial internal factor to accomplish it. We must have conviction and trust ourselves. Mm -hmm. Believing that we can successfully complete that work. Yeah. And that's so important. And as holiness uh, often talks about how bodhisattvas require uh, very strong self-confidence. Yeah. So that, 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 you know, it's important quality. And it is very different than pride. Very different. Yeah, I think we get proudful, prideful, conceited um, when we don't have self-confidence. Yeah, when we really have self-confidence, we don't need to boast about it to anybody. When we don't have it, then we like to point out all of our good qualities and our knowledge and our status and our achievements and so on and so forth. Yeah. 
Okay, developing self-confidence and appreciation of our potential are the chief purposes of contemplating our precious human life. Okay, did you ever think that that was the purpose of meditating on precious human life? Developing self-confidence and appreciation for your potential? Do you ever think that that's what you're supposed to come out of that meditation with? Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? You know, and to what extent do we use that meditation when we feel low on uh, self-confidence and low on our potential? Use that meditation to, to boost ourselves? Yeah, how often do we do that? Interesting, huh? As we do this meditation, the conviction that we can definitely transform our mind and gain spiritual realizations will grow. So that conviction, that confidence, yes, it's possible to transform this, you know, big mess. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually possible. And there's ways to do it, and I can do it if I just stick to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of one of our biggest problems is we don't stick to things. Yeah, we start a little bit and then we get bored or it's not going as fast as we want or whatever it is, and so we look for something else, and and that really uh, becomes a big obstacle. Mm-hmm. It's like you. It's like starting to cook. What would happen? If it was your day to cook and you started to make uh, stew and then, you know, you got through chopping the carrots and then, you know, it's like, oh, well, no, let's do something else. So you started doing a stir fry and then you, you chopped a little bit for that and then you decided, no, let's do shepherd pie and you got out the mashed potatoes. And, and then, you know, and by pretty soon it's lunchtime and you haven't cooked anything. Yeah, but you have a whole lot of vegetables and ingredients and your kitchen is a mess. Yeah, but you haven't cooked anything. (laughs) So that that thing of, you know, starting and stopping or, you know, even not even that you go and cook at something else, but it's like, well, I'm I'm tired, you know. I've been in the kitchen for a whole half an hour. Uh, I want to go out to the forest. And then you go out, you put on your work clothes, you go out to the forest and you say, you're there for half an hour. And it's like, okay, I've done enough. (laughs) You know, and nothing ever gets done. Uh, So this is, you know, when you look around, some people, their lives are really like that. You know, they, uh, you know, I I have a, a good friend who has the most wonderful creative ideas, but he he can't carry any of them through. Yeah, they all kind of get stuck midway, but he he has beautiful ideas. Yeah, so it's, you know, this is how we are sometimes. Recognizing the potential of our precious human life is essential. Without it, we may spend a lot of time complaining about upsetting events around us. 
from personal problems to environmental destruction and war. Okay. So, you know, this happened during retreat and I'm fed up. And why is this person talking to me this way? You know, and why is the other person talking to me that way? And how come they always pick on me and they don't pick on somebody else? You know, and our whole life goes by. Yeah. Uh, I think I've told you before, I have my PhD in complaining. Yeah. Expert. You ever need a complaint? Let me know. I'll come up with one. Okay. And I'll even come up with them when you don't want them. (laughs) Okay. So complaining about our own situation, complaining about upsetting events in the world. You know, now there's the coronavirus. How come we don't have enough ventilators? We should have enough, but, you know, this this so-and-so didn't think ahead and just trivialized it, and so we don't have it, and, you know, this whole country is falling apart, and anyway, it's because of fake news, but who's the one giving the fake news? I can't tell anymore, and, you know, okay, so we, yeah, we get into it. Consistently focusing on misfortune prevents us from seeing the good in the world. And this narrow and unrealistic vision hinders our well-being as well as our enthusiasm for Dharma practice. Okay, so when we're only looking for what's going wrong in our life, when we're only looking for what's going wrong in the world, when we only focus on you know, I want this and I can't get it, and instead I get the opposite. Yeah, we can come up with 5,003 arguments about why we're the victim of other people's self-centeredness. But what effect does doing that have on us? Does it get the other person to change? No. Okay. Does it make us depressed and angry and discouraged? Yes. Are those good qualities to have that help me in my practice? Forget it. So why am I cultivating that mind that only looks at what I don't like and complains about what I don't like and how people don't treat me well? You know, who are we shooting in the foot when when we're like that? It's not harming the other person. It's harming us. Mm -hmm. So this is very good. You should do some meditation on this and really look in your life. Go back and look at examples in your life. Yeah, I'm sure there's lots of them. <laughs> of times when you know you've gotten wound up in in anger and complaining, wound up in discouragement, and then see where that led you. Yeah, and then you know when you do that, then you really see. Okay, that mental state is not my friend. 
Yeah, it's it's harming me. And when you have, when you're very convinced about that, then when it starts to come up in your life, then you can look and say, "Shut up!" You know, <laughs> to this complaining. Uh, there's a Yiddish word, "kvetch." Okay, kvetching mind. Yeah, you just complain. And something like this, and then this person said that. And can you imagine this person? No, yeah. So you fetch all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I learned very funny words in Yiddish. I can't speak Yiddish, but I learned certain swear words <laughs> names to call people <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> when the Buddha was alive in India, people had access to an awakened teacher, but not everyone was interested in hearing his teachings. And among those who were, some had previous commitments or health conditions that impeded them, impeded them from doing so. Sadly, these people had human lives, but not precious human lives. Okay, so you see when you read the Pali scriptures, met, you know, these people met the Buddha, had, had dialogues with him, but it like went in one ear and out the other. They, they didn't, they couldn't grok who he was, you know, or, or what opportunity they had. The mind was very obscured. So it's not only at the Buddhist time. Um, if you look around you, yeah, um, we have a, a saying at the Abbey when about people coming here that you you don't believe they're the, going to come until you see the whites of their eyes in the meditation hall. Okay, because sometimes people can't get themselves here. Or people have gotten themselves here and they can't get themselves into the meditation hall. Yeah, they turn around and go before even one session. It's so interesting to watch, you know. And then, you know, when they talk about karma and you know, obscurations and ways of thinking that create blocks, then you begin to see it in, you know, in people that you know, and it's no longer an intellectual teaching. It's it's something very real, and then you want to really do purification and make lots of prayers, dedication prayers, never to to uh, think or act like that, but to think and act in the exact opposite way. Yeah. And then you, you know, you see that and you go, oh my God, you know, I don't want to be like that. And then that, that, it, you know, makes you really have a very, very strong determination. And then a very strong prayer dedication. And you can feel the power of that when you make that that strong determination and dedication. And I think it's because we did things like that in our previous life that all of us are here now. Yeah, because think about it. Did, did you create the merit in this life 
to meet the teachings and be ordained. You know, think about your life before you met the Dharma. Did you create the merit to have this kind of thing happen in your life? I didn't. Yeah. So it really, uh, yeah. Thinking about this really gives us a lot of confidence in, in cause and effect, karma and its results. A precious human life. Okay, so not every human life is a precious one, but a precious human life is free from eight impediments and endowed with ten fortunes. Of the eight unfavorable states, four are rebirth in non-human states. Although these rebirths are temporary, the person is impeded from practicing for their uh, duration. Okay, so facing intent physical uh, torment, hell beings are unable to direct their minds to spiritual practice. Okay, so they say, you know, imagine being born in that, in a hellish realm. Yeah, there's descriptions of them. If that's too much for you, think of being born in Syria in the middle of the, the war with coronavirus coming, you know? The thing, think of some, if you can't think of the hell beings, think of, of some kind of serious state of suffering and how uh, when there's so much physical pain, it's very difficult to practice, you know, when there's that kind of fear and pain and torture. I mean, think about people who are tortured, yeah, and how do you... How how are you going to practice then? Very difficult, huh? Yeah. If we ever are in that situation, we have to find some way to practice, but we can see that, you know, it's going to be hard. It would be very hard to get our mind pulled together enough to think about the Dharma. Okay, the second one are hungry ghosts or pretas. So they're distracted from spiritual practice by extreme hunger and thirst, as well as by their constant search for food and drink and the frustration of not being able to procure them. Okay, so hungry ghosts, they usually talk about them as, you know, all these impediments to get food and drink because they have long necks and they're blocked when they're tied in knots and they can't see the food and even they see the food, they can't get it in the mouth and even they get it in the mouth, it burns all the way down and and like that. But if you think in another way, a hungry ghost, that mental state is a mental state of incredible dissatisfaction and craving. Yeah, the hell beings is a mental state of fear, suspicion, anger. Yeah, and hungry ghost is just constant craving, and that craving bringing uh, frustration one after another, after another, after another. Yeah. So when you think like that, uh, you know you can then see, oh, if I create, if I habituate myself with those kind of mental characteristics, 
or that kind of behavior in a human life, I'm creating the cause to have that manifest in a form in my next rebirth. Yeah. And when you think about that with that, then you go, I've got to change. <laughs> you know? I don't want to experience the result of that. I need to change. Okay, animals are eaten by other animals higher on the food chain, often mistreated by human beings, and are mentally incapable of understanding Dharma teachings. Okay, so our dear friends, you know, all the dear, which are not so many this year, each year the number of years go, goes down. They're so sweet, aren't they? Yeah, but hunters want to kill them. Uh, and as a deer, you know, that's that's part of your life, you know, you're you're hunted like that. Um mistreated by human beings. What really breaks my heart is when I lived in Dharamsala um or in McLeod and they would be building there. Yeah, they would build out of uh, stone and slate, and they would uh, and always use gravel, and they would load this on the back of donkeys. So there were donkeys with these big, um, what's the canvas type of bags? But yeah, like saddlebags, but not out of leather, firm ones with a nice. Um, saddle on them, but just draped over their back. And then they, they would put all these really heavy stones and slate and gravel in, in the donkeys, and then they'd beat them to get them to move, and they had to walk uphill a lot of the time. And whenever I saw this, it just really horrified me. It's like, you know, just how painful that is for the donkeys. And there's nothing I can do about it, you know. And animals are mentally incapable of understanding Dharma teachers. Okay. Where are they? My tree's under the author. Who's sleeping? The other one's sleeping. The, the other one's sleeping there. So we have... Three sleeping beauties and one downstairs probably sleeping too. Okay? And even though they would, even if they heard, you know, no no ability to really comprehend. It's, you know, when you think about it, how much good karma it took for them to be born near the Dharma, but how much negative karma to not be able to, to understand anything of it. Uh -huh. I was thinking about that when Lama Sopa um, came to Seattle. What year was that? Way back. Anybody remember what year? 97. Huh? 97. 97? Hmm. And he... Uh, he was staying in the flat where I usually stayed. I moved out um, 
But I went in, and he was in the bedroom, and he was sitting on the bed, and uh, my little kitty named Jigme. Yeah, same, uh, not not you. But uh, she was a little kitty who was stray. Jigme means fearless, and she got that name because she was a real scaredy cat. Yeah? <clears throat> and she was hiding under the bed, under Rinpoche's bed. And I thought, you know, we're always told to visualize the guru on top of our head. And she has it, you know? right there, sitting in the room with him. And, you know, nothing, can't understand. Okay, and then the fourth non-human state is those borns as di- born as discriminationless gods. So it's a type of god in the fourth uh, dhyana of the form realm. So they have almost no mental activity during that life. Born there because of having cultivated the meditative absorptions without discriminate meditative absorption without discrimination in the previous life. Their only moments of clear discrimination occur at the time of their birth and the time of their death, and that's it. So they're even born in the upper realms, but no possibility to to practice. Okay, so they say to <clears throat> meditate on each of these. Um, you know, think, imagining what it would be like to to be born in that way, and you know, live imagining a day in the life, and then come back to who you are now, and see the opportunities you have now. And the qualities that you have now, the human intelligence, the ability to reflect on your mental states and your emotions and evaluate what is virtuous and what's non-virtuous. And, you know, so, so our mind and our physical situation are so different from these beings in the other realms. Um, that it really helps us to appreciate the circumstance we live in, which we often really take for granted. And then a precious human life is also free from four disadvantageous human conditions. So the first of those is living in a barbaric, uncivilized society or in a country where religion is outlawed. So, according to the def- the Buddhist definition of barbaric, uncivilized society, it's a place where, uh, you know, the 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 people don't practice ethical conduct. The dharma is not inv- available. Um, people have all sorts of wrong views and wrong ethical uh, standards. So. Most of us here were born in that kind of society, don't you think? You know, I mean, our our culture has many, many good qualities, but also there's a lot of things that if you're just born in this culture uh, and don't have any input in your life from 
people with good ethical conduct or people who think about kindness and compassion. The general society doesn't always encourage that. We're seeing a lot of that now with the coronavirus, you know, people really reaching out. And we're also seeing a lot of selfishness and stinginess because of the coronavirus at the same time. Okay. Or, you know, living in a place where the the religion is outlawed. And here, uh, I remember Alex Burton telling me about some of his travels uh, in the communist countries. This was before uh, the Berlin Wall fell and before the Soviet Union broke up. Um, and I remember him telling me about in Prague, because uh, things were really outlawed there, everybody who wanted to come to the class came at different times to somebody's private flat. In the living room of the flat, they would set up a card game. Then they would go in the bed get bedroom and have the teachings. And if the police came to the door, they just went right out into the living room and assumed their card game so that they wouldn't be arrested by the police for, you know, meeting as a spiritual group. Or you think about what happened to the Tibetans uh, and also the Chinese Buddhists under uh, the communists, and especially during the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, whereas if you moved your mouth saying mantra, they would arrest you or beat you. Yeah, just simple, simple things. I met one monk, and his um, family was kind of well-to-do in Tibet. But after the, the invasion, the communist invasion, uh, then he was arrested, as, as many monks were, and he was imprisoned in his own family's house as the house was turned into a prison. Um, his Holiness's doctor, uh, he wrote about his experience in Tibet and, you know, after the invasion and how they were starving and they would uh, go out and kind of rummage through everybody's poop to pick out grains of that hadn't been digested because that was all there was to eat. And it really amazed me how, because um, when you met him, he was a happy, friendly person and how resilient people can be when they come from that, you know, kind of hardship. You know, it's really hard to imagine. Um, so, okay, so living in that kind of society. Second one is living where the Buddha's teachings are not available or during a time when the Dharma has not been taught. So imagine that you have this incredible spiritual longing. You know, you really want to understand what life is about. And you want to have a meaningful life. And there's nobody around to learn from. There's nobody around who's interested in that. Nobody around you can talk to about that. Um, 
or only thing you can encounter is all sorts of strange philosophies that there's no way you could possibly be, believe in. And when I think about that, it's like how painful that must be to have that spiritual longing and not be able to meet a teacher or to meet other practitioners, you know, and spending your whole life with that longing. And, you know, we, we don't learn the path by ourselves. We have to be taught, but where there's no opportunity for that. Then the third is is being uh, severely mentally or physically impaired so that our ability to learn and practice the teachings is extremely restricted. Okay? So somebody, yeah, very mentally impaired, so they can't think about the teachings, they have no interest, their behavior is very strange, or they have some very severe learning disability, or some um, very extreme physical disability that you know prevents them from getting to a temple or a dharma center or whatever. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, I when I lived in France back in the eighties, um, someone invited me to Denmark to teach. And she worked in a home for uh, for handicapped children or other powered children. I, I don't know the right word. And uh, I asked her if I could go with her to work one day. And so I did. And I walked in the, in the room, and the room was filled with brightly colored things. It was like the kind of room where any kid would just, you know, there were so many toys and bright things and things to play with. And I'm looking at around and going, wow, this is incredible. But where are the kids? And then I heard, uh, and all sorts of strange noises. And then my eyes refocused, and among all the toys and colorful things, there were kids. And kids, you know, draped over some object, unable to move. Um, kids, you know, 10 years old, 12 years old, in a crib, all curled up. Um, yeah, just incredible kind of thing. And I thought, wow, you know, if you have the karma to be born like that, I mean, they're born as human beings. They're born in Denmark, you know, a very wealthy country, and no opportunity to learn the Dharma. And then fourth is um, to be born as someone who instinctively holds wrong views. Yeah, they're so entrenched in wrong views that they can't hear anything else. Okay, so it makes our mind unreceptive to examining new explanations of dukkha, its causes, cessation, and the path leading to that cessation. 
So the mind is so stuck in wrong views that even you try and present another way, and it's like, no, no, that doesn't exist, that's impossible, that's stupid, you have blind belief, I am on the one true path, and everything else is wrong, and if you knew what was good for you, you'd convert to my path. Yeah? So, you know, imagine being born like that, so stuck in your own views that, uh, you know, you couldn't even accept the differences in, in opinions or accept that there's other faiths that, that may have something good in them. When I lived in Singapore, I was uh, helping one young man who was dying of cancer. And some of the Christians had somehow found him. And so I, uh, you know, the Christians would always go around door to door and, and things like that. So I came to visit him one day, and I was in the living room, and there were some Christians, preachers who were, who were there, who were waiting to see him also. And, you know, I started talking. I like talking with the people who were different than I am. And they start and they called me a heathen and kept saying, you know, you, you're following a heathen religion. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, but the word heathen has certain connotations to me. Okay? But in, in their mind, it's like, you know, I was a heathen. And... You know, try as I might to to have a conversation about anything else except what they believed. It, it didn't go. It didn't fly. Okay. So when you think, you know, imagine being having that kind of mind, yeah. or imagine being um, a PLA soldier. Around 1949, yeah, People's Liberation Army in China, yeah. The young, you know, were so many young men who were from impoverished villages, they joined the army in the hope of, you know, having a better life and maybe getting some money for their family. But they were conditioned in all this communist propaganda and then forced to go out and, uh, you know, destroy temples and imprison Sangha and force Sangha to have sex in public and, you know, so overwhelmed by these kind of wrong views and imprisoned in, in the situation they were in. Because if they tried to get out of it, you know, there's no way getting out of the PLA, you know. Um, and so you just think, you know, what would it be like to have to have that kind of mental attitude and, and by karma be stuck in that situation? Okay. So when meditating on the eight unfavorable conditions, do not simply think of other people born in those states. But imagine living in those circumstances yourself. 
Yeah, so spend some time doing that. Then recall your current freedom from those limitations and appreciate the excellent conditions you now have. So come back to your present life. You know, spend some time really trying, imagining somebody else's life and then come back to your present life and see uh, the conditions that you have around you that are quite extraordinary when you think about it. Okay, then reflect on the 10 fortunes you presently have. Five of these are personal and five come from society. So the first pers- five personal fortunes are, first one, being a human being with human intelligence that enables you to learn, reflect, and meditate on the Buddha Dharma. So His Holiness often talks about, you know, we're human beings with human intelligence. He really emphasizes that, human intelligence. And so the ability to really think critically about things, yeah, to to ex- to learn and to examine things with a critical mind, and to have an interest in spiritual matters and things that are actually important. Some people have are very very bright, have an extremely good critical mind, but they apply it to how to rob a bank or how to cheat people out of uh, money. You know, there's a lot of scams going on now due to the, the virus. So I'm sure there's some very intelligent people who've been thinking about how to cheat people. Now, so not using human intelligence in, in a good way, but we have it, and you know, and to boot, we also have an education. And an education, in some ways, is very good, and in some ways, can be a, di- a problem. Okay, having an education, you know, we're, we learn how to think, we learn not to believe everything we hear, yeah, and we are exposed to a wide breadth of knowledge, yeah. And so that kind, you know, that advantage of education is just fantastic. Yeah, the disadvantage of education, in from a Buddhist sense, is that sometimes we get very stuck in our ideas and our opinions, and we won't consider anything else. We become very opinionated, very conceited. I'm right, you're wrong, I'm going to win the argument, I know what's best. Um, So you have examples in history of some practitioners who had fantastic education and other practitioners who didn't have a lot of formal education, but they were extremely intelligent when it comes to the Dharma. And what you really see as you go on in your practice and meet people is people who are very intelligent in in worldly things. Some of them are intelligent in the Dharma, but some of them just do not understand the Dharma at all. Yeah, the mind is so blocked and so resistant. And yet they're incredible 
incredibly intelligent, bright people, you know, rocket scientists, to, to use our, our usual example, but cannot understand the Dharma. And then you have people who do not have a big education, who, in terms of, you know, secular education, when it comes to Dharma, they really get it. And then there's people who have, you know, both a good secular education and understand the Dharma, and people who are lacking in both of those. Okay. So how many points? Four. Okay. So see if you can make examples of the four in your life, of people that you know. Okay. But just, yeah, to have a human intelligence is is quite amazing. The second, living in a central Buddhist region, one where the four types of Buddhist disciples are found, male and female fully ordained monastics, and male and female lay followers with the five precepts. In terms of Vinaya, a central country is one where the Sangha of four or more fully ordained monks or nuns lives and performs the three major Vinaya ceremonies, fortnightly confession or posada, rains retreat or varsa, and the invitation for feedback at the conclusion of the retreat or pravarana. Okay, and as it came up the other day, from a tantric viewpoint, a central country is where the Guru Samaja Tantra is taught and practiced. And probably from the Bodhisattva, Viewpoint, it's a place where, you know, the bodhisattva practices are taught and practiced. Okay, so that's one thing, you know, that we're doing in in practicing the Vinaya. And, you know, first of all, we have four or more fully ordained people. And then we're doing these Vinaya ceremonies. And so it makes this a central land, which is is important. Yeah. Um, you know, when when Venerable Sangha Kadra and, and I started, it was like very difficult to find Buddhist things in this country. Very difficult. There were ethnic Buddhists, but I didn't speak any other languages. You know, and even back then, there weren't so many ethical ethnic Buddhists as there are now in the country. Yeah. So, um, yeah, having a place where there's practitioners and there's access to the Dharma is, is really rather special. The third is having a healthy body and mind. So, again, uh, not having impediments that prevent us from learning. Also, what you know, in terms of ordaining, um, you, ha- you have to be healthy. If uh, you aren't healthy, if you have certain disabilities or very severe illnesses, uh, you cannot ordain in this lifetime. Yeah, so yeah. being healthy in body and mind, uh, at least when you're young, when you're old, you know, it's like your health goes, plunk. but, uh, you know, at least when you meet the Dharma, so that you can uh, really get into it. Yeah, I mean, think think about it. Like, let's say you want to do your your prostration nundro. 
But you meet the Dharma when you're 65. Yeah, or 70 or 75. Difficult, yeah. If you meet the Dharma when you're younger, your your body can do the, you know, 100,000 prostrations. And then fourth is not not having committed the five actions of immediate retribution. So killing one's father or mother or an arhat, drawing blood from a Buddha, or causing a schism in the Sangha. So be very careful about creating, about not creating these kind of actions. And then fifth, having belief in things worthy of respect such as the Vinaya as the basis of the Dharma practice and the three baskets of teaching on ethical conduct, concentration, and wisdom. So this is what our meditation was about. Yeah, having belief in things that are worthy of respect, having interest, being eager to learn. And uh, not everybody has that quality. Yeah, people can have... You know, there's 18 qualities here. People could have 17 of them, and you're missing one, and it it creates a a big problem in your life. Yeah, because, for example, uh, you go to Bodhaya. You know, it's the holiest place on this whole entire planet, and you go there, and there's some people who are pilgrims. And then there's some people who are there to make money. Yeah, they own all these shops, selling all the the little Buddhist trinkets and posters and pictures and statues. They run the chai shops, the restaurants. Yeah, they organize the tours. They're living in the holiest place on the planet. Aren't interested at all and just use it to, uh, to make money and have a livelihood. Yeah. So imagine, you know, being born with that kind of attitude in your mind, you know, where you're blocked to understanding the Dharma. Then there's five fortunate factors coming from society. Uh, uh, So they are the five fortunate factors coming from society are living at a place and a time when. A Buddha is present in the world. So they say that, uh, you know, Shakyamuni Buddha, we got born too late for that, but uh, his teachings still exist. So that is good enough. Yeah. In the same way that a central land, you know, you should have a bhikshu sangha and a bhikshuni sangha. The Tibetans don't have a bhikshuni sangha. They actually don't have a central land. But what they say is, well, the bhikshus are the leaders of the sangha, so that's good enough. Okay. But uh, the Buddha, when he attained awakening, you know, when Mara was trying to get him to pass away, he said he wouldn't pass away until the fourfold sangha was established, uh, firmly established. So the Buddha cared about the fourfold sangha. Okay, um, the seventh is the Buddha has taught and is still teaching the Dharma. So although these two conditions are not strictly fulfilled now, there are presently qualified spiritual mentors 
who give the teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha, and this suffices for fulfilling these two conditions. Then eight is the those teachings still exist and are flourishing. So the transmitted dharma of the three baskets exists and is propagated, and the realized dharma of true cessations and true paths exists in the mind streams of living practitioners. There is a living tradition of spiritual mentors who can impart the teachings orally and through their example. Okay, so very important, you know, again, being born in a time and a place where the teachings exist, not just exist, but where they're flourishing, and where there's teachers. Yeah, because, and you know, you can see how things are degenerating now, and at a certain point, there won't be qualified teachers. And at a certain point, uh, you know, there won't even be the texts. So, uh, you know, being born at, at a time when we have access to these things is is quite special. We have the hindrance of not being born speaking Tibetan or Chinese or Sanskrit or Pali or, you know, Mongolian or whatever. So we have that hindrance. But... Now more and more things are getting translated, so we have access to the teachings. Then nine, there are spiritual mentors, monastics, and other like-minded people who follow the Buddha's teachings and inspire us by showing that the Buddha Dharma is a living tradition. So again, that's really important, you know, to be around spiritual mentors who know the teachings and who embody it in their lives, to be around monastics who do the same, to be around like-minded people who want to learn and practice the Dharma. Okay? It's not easy to come by those people. Sometimes in certain circumstances, it seems like, well, there's so many. I'm at His Holiness's teachings, and there's thousands of people here. I wish some of them would go away so they weren't, I could walk easier. (laughs) But, you know, think about it. Don't don't wish like that, because it's actually quite um, rare to be surrounded by people like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, just think, because I've spent part of my ordained life living in circumstances where there's hardly anybody around who is interested in the Dharma. Yeah? And away from my teachers and away from other practitioners, away from the Sangha, yeah, it's it's not so easy in those conditions. Okay, I think you've lived in those kind of conditions too, somewhat. <laughs> and then uh, tenth, there are benefactors who offer the four requisites for life: food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. Yeah, so all these people who support us. They are one of the ten fortunes that we have in our precious human life. And without them, we would be really lost. Yeah? 
we wouldn't have food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. Or we'd have to go out and get a job, put on lay clothes, grow your hair out, get a job. That's going to make it really difficult to practice. Yeah. So we need to be extremely grateful to all those people that help us. Okay, so reflect individually on each of these points and see that you have an advantageous situation and all the necessary conditions for serious practice. Allow this to gladden your mind and give you great enthusiasm and self-confidence. Okay, so again, in your meditation, you go through each of the ten and you think about your life and how you have it. And you can think about the lives of other people around you, maybe who don't have that, you know, and and you're unfortunate at having those of the ten fortunes, okay? And, and really, uh, again, let your mind feel happy. People who have not thought about rebirth very much may not be able to clearly ascertain the freedoms and fortunes of a precious human life. Nevertheless, there are common points on which everyone can agree. We know that Shakyamuni Buddha lived and taught in ancient India, and that many Buddhist sages, such as Nagarjuna, Asanga, and Shantideva, gained extraordinary qualities by following in his footsteps. Their pure ethical conduct, meditative experience, wisdom, and great humility are evident in their life stories and the treatises they authored. These and many other Buddhist sages did not become renowned by becoming war heroes or financial tycoons or politicians or famous artists and movie stars and sports stars. Rather, they observed a life of restraint and humility and benefited others. Through this, without seeking fame, they became well-known well role models for subsequent generations of practitioners. If we reflect on the nature of their precious human lives and our own, we do not find much difference. Everyone has the same human potential. As human beings, we have unique intelligence compared with other life forms, regardless of our nationality, gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, social class, religion, and so on. Everyone has the same Buddha nature. Siddhartha Gautama was an ordinary person just like us. By tapping into and using his human potential in the right way, he became a Buddha and was able to greatly benefit beings living at that time, as well as those in many centuries to come. Even today we hear of and encounter people who offer great service and benefit to humankind. We have the ability to do the same. So the Buddha and the great sages that we appreciate, they weren't trying to, uh, you know, make a name for themselves. <laughs> yeah. They just were doing their practice, and because they practice purely, then, you know, we have the teachings and we have the examples of their lives. I have found in my discussions, this is His Holiness speaking, 
I have found in my discussions with people that many suffer from low self-esteem and self-hatred. When we reflect on our spectacular good fortune in having a precious human life, these distorted conceptions vanish. We have all 18 factors of a precious human life. So obviously, we are a worthwhile and adequate person. Yeah? (laughs) We created tremendous constructive karma in previous lives to have our present opportunity. So we are capable of Dharma practice. We have all necessary conditions to progress on the path and accomplish our spiritual aims in this life. So seeing the future as bleak is unrealistic. Coronavirus or no coronavirus. Okay. Seeing our future as bleak is unrealistic. Consistent consistent meditation, not just from time to time, consistent meditation on precious human life prevents us from such self-defeating and inaccurate views, ways of viewing ourselves. To the contrary, it generates great enthusiasm for Dharma practice. Okay? So whenever you're feeling down, this is what you meditate on. Okay, so we have a few minutes for questions, comments. Uh-huh. Someone on, someone online is asking, what is the primary cause or mistake of feeling strong selfishness, even when doing lots of service? Is it based in wrong views? Now, it's just a result of strong selfishness in the past. <laughs> yeah? One moment of self-centeredness produces the next moment. You keep getting habituated with it. You plant more and more seeds of it in your mind. In the 35 Buddha practice, um, when we're doing the general confession afterwards, Mm -hmm. it goes through the, it mentions the eight um, unfortunate states. Mm -hmm. And it also has in being displeased with the presence of a Buddha. Um, like added onto that list. Yeah, like I, I put that, that's part of the barbaric ones. If you're born in a barbaric country, you have no pleasure at seeing the Buddha. Yeah. Well, in, in terms of the five heinous actions. The five? Heinous actions. Uh-huh. Do that apply to animals as well? There are some animals who kill their parents? Yeah. And so that, does that apply? Mm, I wouldn't think so. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't think so. Have you heard anything about that? I've never heard this explained, but I just tend to think that animals do create karma, but it wouldn't be as heavy Uh, as human karma because they just don't have the ability to understand what they're doing and understand right and wrong. Yeah. Yeah, like an animal might kill their their mother or father or an arhat, but they wouldn't necessarily 
have the intellectual ability to realize how how wrong that is. I was thinking that another obstacle is for people who are identified as children as being extraordinarily exceptional. Mm-hmm. And then for the rest of their child life and teenage life, they're directed in this intense study, you know, as a musician or an athlete. And the mind is just so focused on that. So, you know, they can... Mm-hmm. Spend the rest of their life just doing that. Yeah. Being sucked into that vortex. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Like I was saying last week, being too good looking becomes an obstacle. Being, you know, like the the child genius can also become an obstacle. Yeah. And uh, he's asking, would it be accurate to say that we um, have a precious human life one moment at a time, since our future and future health aren't guaranteed, in- including all the other fortunes? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you can have a, a precious human life at one part of your during your life and not at other parts. You know, sometimes as a child you don't have it, and then you have a precious human life later, and and vice versa. And uh, Fosa is now asking, um, uh, how can a being in the hell realm grow into a human life in future lives? Very difficult. Basically, once you're born in hell realm, hunger ghost realm, or animal realm, or the perceptionless God realm, the the way to get a, a human a, a precious human life has is going to have to rely on uh, good karma that you created in a previous life before you were born in the lower realms. Okay, so maybe before you were born in the life before you were born in the lower realms, you were a human being. You created some virtue. Yeah. But you also created some non-virtue, and that was what ripened at the time of death. So then you spent some lifetimes or eons in the lower realm. And then, uh, you know, when you're dying from one of their rebirths, maybe you have a virtuous thought, or maybe somebody is reciting mantra or prayers or something around you, and that makes one of the virtuous karma that you created many lifetimes ago as a human being, ripen, and you can then have a precious human life. Yeah. So when you think about this, this you know, you can see why it's difficult to have. They talk about uh, the Buddha generating compassion or bodhicitta first time in hell realms. Mm-hmm. So does that mean that it, it only... only it's not that you are unable to redirect their minds to spiritual practice, but you need to be exceptional and have cultivated that state yeah. in order to... So actually about that, that story, some say, people say that the Buddha uh, generated bodhicitta the first time in, in the hell realms. There's a lot of debate about that. Some people say it wasn't uh, bodhicitta, it was compassion. So, yeah, you would have to be pretty exceptional, and it it would make you wonder why, uh, how somebody uh, got born in that in that difficult situation to start with, if they were so close to generating great compassion. Yeah, there must have been some very heavy negative karma that that ripened at the time of the of death of the previous lives. 
Is it always that one with a mental illness uh -huh. is not able to live a monastic life or to become a teacher, such as if they have um, depression? I think it depends. No, you know, it. I mean, it depends how severe the mental illness is. Yeah, but it's not just, you know, any person. We're all mentally ill, actually. Yeah, so... Uh, so it you know it depends on the degree of of the illness and how much that illness interrupts their ability to practice yeah hmm yeah and if they get treated and and so on yeah and jana is asking what is the definition of the word precious from a Buddhist perspective in this context of speaking of a precious human life? It means you have the opportunity to encounter the Dharma, encounter teachers, learn, reflect, meditate on the Dharma. Yeah? So it, it, it's the... Yeah, the precious doesn't mean that you're, bo you're born in a place that's very rich and comfortable. Yeah, that's, that's not considered a precious human life. Here, precious is having the, the, all the conditions so that you can, can really learn and practice and advance on the path. One mm -hmm. more. Uh -huh. <laughs> Kenry asking, uh, can we vow to be a hell bodhisattva or animal bodhisattva to liberate them um, if there's any chance? It is too painful to see them suffer. Sure, you know, I mean, some bodhisattvas, we have stories. I mean, Chen Rezi did that. And you vowed to be born in the hell realms to liberate the beings there. Yeah. You have to have a lot of patience, not just, you know, tolerance of the physical, you know, the situation, but to be with beings who are very obscured. Yeah. So you have to be a bodhisattva with... Very strong fortitude. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, you teach them and then they go and do the opposite. And you throw your hands up and say, what's the use? Yeah. But many bodhisattvas vow, vow to do that. Jolene is asking, can we say that a very kind teacher like Mother Teresa does not have a precious human life from a Buddhist perspective? Yeah. Yeah. She's very kind. She practice, She creates a lot of virtue. She creates a lot of virtue. But in terms of her views, you know, the, the, the philosophical views that she has, I mean, I can't read her mind, but, you know, generally speaking, uh, you know, I would assume that, that she believed in a, uh, an external creator. And that kind of belief makes it difficult to realize emptiness. Just on the subject of the worldly education, I, was, I just remember when Geshe Man Ladrin was telling us her life story and how she was born very poor and all the kids were taking care of the yaks and the zoos. But she learned to read by memorizing the Diamond Sutra. That was the norm <laughs> in Ladakh. Her grandfather could read and taught all the kids the Diamond Sutra. And uh -huh. I was like, my goodness. <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I learned to read with Dick and Jane, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just so different, right? And how, if you're born in that culture, even if you're not materially rich, you meet the Dharma like that. Yeah. And the imprint is so strong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's all around you. 
So, okay, so we'll stop here. And, uh, and then just to remind the people online, we're going to, uh, if any of them are in Europe, um, we're going to, well, why don't I, you announce it. Me? Yes, you. Oh, dear. Okay, because you'll remember the dates and okay. everything. Well, okay, yes. So <laughs> we're online for a number of things. So this mm-hmm. Sunday, Sharing the Dharma Day will be um, live-streamed, our very first live-stream Sharing the Dharma Day, so that people who live far away can come. Um, so that's at 10 a.m. Pacific time to about 12 mm-hmm. Pacific time. Then beginning, uh, and then April 12th is the next time that we'll be live streaming. Every Friday night we'll be here. And then on April 12th we'll live stream our Sharing the Dharma Day and Katina's celebration. We'll figure out how to do that and let you know. But roughly that's 10 a.m. to 12 <laughs> p.m. or 12.30 on that day as well, April 12th. Then on um, from nine teachings in April, April 15, 16, and 17, April 22, 23, and 24, April 29, 30, and May 1. Venerable Children mm-hmm. will be teaching um, on live stream, Parting from the Four Attachments. Uh, it's at 7 to 8.30 p.m. Central Time for Europeans and 10 to 11.30 a.m. Pacific Time. So find your time zone somewhere yeah. there. And Russians and Israelis, it'll be uh, 8 p.m. Okay, 8 p.m. for Russians and Israelis. And 6 p.m. for British. <laughs> yeah, and so Boris Johnson can, he, he's sick, he has yeah, coronavirus. Yeah, so yeah. maybe he, he could watch, watch too. He can watch huh. too. Yeah. And then we're also doing Venerable Sangi Kadro's retreat, mm-hmm. um, Peaceful Living and Peaceful Dying, April 17 through 20. That's a weekend retreat. So this too will be live streamed. We'll have um, the Friday night teaching, the 17th, will actually be the beginning of that retreat. Mm-hmm. She will teach twice on Saturday, once morning and evening, twice on Sunday, morning and evening, then Monday morning. We'll have guided meditations after each of those. And we're going to have discussion groups. Um, so keep an eye on the website for that schedule. Yeah. And then... Okay, I think that's safe. enough. Oh, okay, safe. Then, yeah. <laughs> then the safe course also begins April 13th, so you okay. can sign up for that. Safe is uh, Shravasti Abhi Friends Education. So the um, the teachings, the nine teachings in, in April and then on May 1st, uh, I was supposed to go to Europe to, to teach, and then that all got canceled. So the teachings are being held in the morning uh, Pacific time, which is the evening in in Europe and Russia and is Israel and so on. So especially for those people, but and everything will be archived as well. So the whole coronavirus thing, excellent time to to listen to Dharma teachings, to meditate, to read Dharma books, to catch up on all those things that you've wanted to do for so long. And now you have time to do them. So really uh, take advantage of it.